My topic is the evidence for the resurrection. And my text is a stern one from 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This is our Easter acclamation. But is it true? Is Christ indeed risen? If a video camera had been placed in the tomb, triggered to film any movement, temperature change, or light variation, would it have recorded the most extraordinary event in human history? But there is no videotape. There are no eyewitnesses to the moment itself. But there are other sorts of evidence. The evidence for the resurrection is of two kinds, circumstantial and experiential. What is circumstantial evidence? Well, say you heard a gunshot. You look up to see a man running out of a store wearing gloves. You run into the store and find a woman dead of a gunshot wound. A gun lies nearby. It has no fingerprints on it. But the bullet that killed the woman was fired from the gun. There is no one else in the store. Would these facts prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the man you saw running away had committed murder? Very likely, unless there was a powerful alibi, an alternative explanation. You see, the circumstances strongly suggest his guilt. The evidence for the resurrection is also circumstantial. It is offered by four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and by the Apostle Paul's summary of the resurrection tradition in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is claimed? According to these witnesses, the resurrection is an inference drawn from four circumstances. First, the empty tomb which is attested in all four gospel accounts. Second, the arrangement of the grave clothes, which only John reports. In John chapter 20, in verses 7 and 8, we read that Peter and the beloved disciple ran to the tomb after Mary Magdalene reported that it was empty. When Peter entered the tomb, quote, he saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. The beloved disciple went in, and he saw and believed. Well, what was it about the arrangement of the grave clause that caused John to believe in the resurrection? The empty tomb by itself only attested to the disappearance of the body. Presumably, it was the napkin that had been wrapped around the head of Jesus. If it was still rolled up, then perhaps it had simply collapsed without being unwrapped because Jesus had passed through it in leaving the tomb, a resurrection. The third circumstance from which the resurrection is inferred is the appearances of Jesus to the disciples described by Matthew, Luke, John, and summarized by Paul. Mark's account ends before any appearances are reported there are at least 10 different appearances over the next 40 days by the same Jesus they had known 
yet he was radically transformed. He showed them his wounds, ate a piece of fish, denied that he was a ghost, allowed them to touch and embrace him, cooked breakfast as in today's gospel reading, yet at times he was unrecognizable. He appeared and disappeared suddenly. He passed through locked doors. He overheard conversations like Thomas's stubborn skepticism that we read about last week, at which he was not visibly present. These resurrection appearances ended with his ascension on the 40th day, with the sole exception of one to Paul, untimely born on the road to Damascus, which was our second reading. The fourth circumstance is the transformation of the disciples from frightened, doubtful, discouraged folk who even denied knowing Jesus into bold heralds of a new age, working signs and wonders who despite severe persecution constituted a new community, the church, and spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire over the next 30 years. This transformation is evidenced by the rest of the New Testament but especially in the book of Acts. But is the claim of the resurrection in these five accounts coherent? What about the contradictions and inconsistencies among them? First, there is no disagreement in the accounts with regard to these four circumstances, the empty tomb, the arrangement of the grave clothes, the appearances of Christ, and the transformation of the disciples. That some accounts include or omit material in other accounts is not a contradiction or conflict. A contradiction occurs when one account denies information contained in another. And a conflict is when both reports cannot be true. Second, the nature of the event itself, highly traumatic and breaking unexpectedly upon bereaved and frightened people who had no basis whatever in their prior experience for anticipating or coping with it, was bound to create some disparity in the recollections of witnesses. Uniform narratives in all five accounts would create the suspicion of collaboration in a literary creation. Third, we must allow literary license. We are the heirs of 19th century German historicism where precise factual truth is the goal of historiography. But clearly the gospel writers felt a freedom to arrange events and to establish and emphasize theological themes. Some place one angel in the tomb, others two. John focuses on one woman, Mary Magdalene, whereas others report three. John describes Jesus' commissioning of his disciples as missionaries and his empowering of them with the Holy Spirit on Easter night, whereas Luke places the event prior to the ascension and at Pentecost 40 to 50 days later. Matthew places the great commissioning on a mountain in Galilee. Because the evangelists did not approach their task like contemporary investigative reporters, does not make their accounts incredible. Fourth, the main disagreement among the evangelists Paul has either no knowledge or no interest in the sequence of events on Easter Day, is over the role of the women. Who went into the empty tomb first, the women or the disciples? Who saw the risen Jesus first, the women or the disciples? Matthew says the women were first on both counts, into the tomb and seeing the risen Jesus. 
Mark agrees as to the empty tomb, but his account ends before the risen Jesus appears to anyone. Luke agrees that the women were first into the tomb, but that the two disciples at the inn in Emmaus were the first to see for an instant the risen Jesus, and later the ten disciples in the upper room. John says that the women were first at the tomb, but didn't go in. Peter and the beloved disciple were the first into the tomb, but that Mary Magdalene was the first to see the risen Lord. I think it's fairly obvious what's going on here. The Easter story was told and retold for years before the first gospel accounts reached written form. In the case of Mark, probably around 65 AD, but maybe as early as 50 AD. In the retelling, who was first, who was where and when became important to the Christian community because of the honor and authority it conferred. To Jewish followers of Jesus, the testimony of women was problematic. It was not even admissible in first century legal proceedings. There was clearly cultural pressure to minimize the role of women and emphasize that of the disciples who were the apostles and church planters. My own view is that John, although written last, around 90 AD, is the account of an eyewitness and straightens out the sequence. Yes, says John, the women were first at the tomb, but didn't in fact go in. Yes, Peter and John went in first, but didn't see the risen Jesus. Yes, Mary Magdalene was in fact the first witness of the resurrection. Literary license, trauma affecting precise recall, and cultural pressure to minimize the role of women to make the story more credible adequately account for the inconsistencies. But the four accounts are neither incoherent nor discrepant in establishing the four circumstances from which the resurrection is drawn as an inference. One, the empty tomb. Two, the arrangement of the grave clothes. Three, the appearances of Jesus. Four, the transformation of his followers. But are the accounts of the resurrection reasonably contemporaneous with the events they describe? The later embellishment theory was advanced by, among others, Sir James Fraser in The Golden Bough. He suggests that later Christians thought, sought to compete with Eastern mystery religions by glorifying their founder Jesus with a resurrection story to remove the taint of repudiation by Jewish authorities and of the execution by the Roman governor. When the Easter story first began to circulate in the late second century, argued Sir James, the events were so remote that rebuttal was impossible. But the milieu in which the resurrection claim makes sense is Jewish, not rivalry with pagan mystery religions. It was the Jews who expected a resurrection and judgment at the end of the age, at least the Pharisee party did. The Greeks found resurrection a stumbling block because they thought the body was of no lasting value, only the soul mattered. Their view of history was cyclical, not linear. A resurrection claim to mark the end of one age and the beginning of another has its roots in the soil of first century Judaism. Further, the later embellishment theory fails to explain the perseverance of the church. How did it carry on initially, much less attract Gentile converts with only a failed Messiah executed by Rome? Without the resurrection as an early rallying point, it's hard to account for not just the survival, but the astonishing growth of the early church. Finally, the later embellishment theory just isn't true. 
Scholars have confidently established a date no later than 54 AD for Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, he reminds the Corinthians of the centrality of the resurrection as a crucial part of the tradition he imparted to them in establishing their church some three years earlier in 51 AD. He even claims that many witnesses of Christ's resurrection appearances are still alive. His claim is thus being made within 21 years of the event, or as far as we are from 1992. You will agree, I think, that accurate recollections of a major event in the life of a community or individual occurring in 1992 are not only possible, but commonplace today. Grossly inaccurate assertions about such events are easily rebutted by surviving witnesses. Additional evidence that the resurrection was an early claim by followers of Jesus is supplied by the Jewish historian Josephus. Although he was not born until seven years later, 37 AD, and did not write his Jewish antiquities until 93 AD, his father Matthias was a priest serving in the temple and would have known of the tumultuous events under Pontius Pilate. This is what Josephus wrote. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, perhaps he was the Messiah. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. But finally, are there alternative explanations of these four circumstances? Are inferences other than the resurrection as likely or likelier? Again, the four circumstances are the empty tomb, the arrangement of the grave cloths, the appearances of Jesus, and the transformation of the disciples. The task of suggesting alternative explanations is a growth industry and new books appear every couple of years. A great deal of energy is being exerted to shake Christian commitment to the resurrection as history and to discourage non-Christians from belief. But the theories encounter grave difficulties, pun intended, in accounting for all four circumstances. They explain one or two of the circumstances but founder in the remainder. Let's look at the major proposals. If the women went to the wrong tomb or the authorities removed the body of Jesus during the night, we are left with how to account for the arrangement of the grave claws, the appearances of the risen Christ, and why the claim of resurrection and the transformation of the disciples wasn't nipped in the bud by timely production of the body. If Jesus revived in the tomb, rewrapped the grave claws to make them look undisturbed, somehow pushed the heavy stone aside and escaped, we are left to wonder at the incompetence of the executioners in taking a living man down from the cross. In fact, a detail in John's account that when the spear pursed Jesus' side, water and blood flowed out, confirms that he was already dead, as any pathologist will tell you, because only after death do the red blood cells and watery serum begin to separate. 
The extraordinary appearances of Jesus over the next 40 days and the transformation of the disciples are hard to account for if Jesus was a seriously wounded escapee who would soon disappear for good. If the disciples stole the body and rearranged the grave clothes, we are left wondering why they bothered to do so, except to rebury Jesus themselves, perhaps for fear of grave robbers. But then why claim his extraordinary appearances? And even more important, why go out to suffer and even die for his cause? As Maurice Gogel put it, a man may die for a delusion, but for a fraud, never. The claim that the disciples stole Jesus' body is reported by Matthew and attributed to Jewish religious leaders. This inclusion in Matthew's gospel strongly suggests that the early church had nothing to fear from such a charge. The perpetrators of a fraud would surely have suppressed such an allegation. That the authorities did indeed put out the story that the disciples stole the body is confirmed by an official circular of the Sanhedrin, quoted by Justin Martin in the, Martyr in the second century. And the Toledoth Yeshu, compiled in final form by Jewish authorities in the fifth century, also makes this claim. Now, some have suggested that the appearances of Jesus were some sort of group hallucination. The psychological literature does not, so far as I know, record such phenomena where everyone experiences the same thing. Mind-altering substances can certainly produce hallucinations for a whole group if everyone takes them, but the experiences are personal and subjective. The theory that the disciples imagined the resurrection stories out of their intense loyalty to Jesus and determination to carry on in his spirit is just not consistent with their frame of mind on Easter morning. They were so deeply disillusioned and fearful following the crucifixion rather than loyal and determined that the risen Jesus had some difficulty in dispelling this mood as with doubting Thomas and Peter going back to fishing in today's gospel. Nor can the loyalty determination hypothesis explain the subsequent power of their preaching and healing in transforming the lives of others who had not known Jesus. The nostalgic memory of a beloved leader can be a real presence in the lives of his followers after he has died. But it is very difficult to transfer this experience to others who had not known him. Yet this happened to thousands in the early years after Pentecost and to millions in the years following. I do not believe that alternative explanations are able to account satisfactorily for all four circumstances. The empty tomb, the arrangement of the grave cloths, the appearance of the risen Christ, and the transformation of his followers. The accounts which establish these circumstances are not so remote in time from the events as to be untrustworthy, nor are they so incoherent and contradictory as to be inconclusive. The resurrection is a strong inference from well-attested circumstances. One may, of course, refuse to draw this inference on scientific grounds, asserting that it contradicts known laws of human existence, that three days after death, no one has ever been able to return to life. Therefore, Jesus could not have done so. But this mistakes what Christians claim about the resurrection. Jesus was not resuscitated. He did not return from death, but passed through death 
as the beginning of a new creation. He was still himself, but radically transformed with a different relationship to matter and energy. With respect to this singular event, the most a scientist can say is that he is agnostic on the point. That is, science can neither prove nor disprove its historicity. Indeed, the resurrection is not so much disproved as simply ignored by the world. Even the Easter church crowds may view it as a wonderful way to symbolize the renewed life of returning springtime, at least in the northern hemisphere. And the word Easter is apparently borrowed from a Germanic fertility goddess. It would be in bad taste, according to this view, to inquire very closely into its truthfulness. John Updike spoke powerfully to this attitude in his poem, Seven Stanzas for Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse, eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. I mentioned at the outset that there were two sorts of evidence for the truth of the resurrection for the truth of the Easter acclamation, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The first is circumstantial. I hope a fair-minded consideration of the four evangelists and Paul leads you to draw the inference that the resurrection is truth in the sense that a video camera in the tomb in the early hours of Easter day would have recorded an extraordinary event. But this is just the beginning. As John Updike says, let us walk through the door. If you are able to say the resurrection did happen, it is true, and mean it, then your world is transformed. Suddenly you are not alone. And Jesus is not a dead hero like Abraham Lincoln or Joan of Arc, but a living person. Not only is he alive, but vindicated by the resurrection. He was executed on a charge of blasphemy for claiming to be God's son. Could God have overruled that human verdict any more conclusively 
than by the resurrection. It confirms that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And if he went to the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world by bearing it in his own body, then the resurrection means that our forgiveness is secure. As Paul writes to the Romans, Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. He is God's son. We are forgiven. That is the meaning, among others, of the resurrection. So now the hair on the back of our necks begins to stand up as we realize that Jesus, Son of God and bearer of our sin, has escaped space and time and seeks to know each of us. The experiential evidence for the resurrection is our personal encounter with the risen Jesus. That is the highest privilege and greatest good for each of us. If you are willing to draw the inference and say the resurrection is true, then take a second step and ask the risen Jesus to evidence that truth in personal encounter with you. Do it in the quiet of your most private place and time. Invite him to come to you, to encounter you, unseen and yet palpable in his resurrection power and love and peace. This is not presumptuous on your part. This is the meeting for which you were created and to which your life has been intended by God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to confirm for us the truth of your resurrection. Come to each of us not as an idea or a shared memory or a subjective longing, but as an other, a thou, in power and love and forgiveness. Show each of us for the first time or afresh the reality of your resurrection as we open ourselves to you in this Easter season. Amen.